Chris, what's the program for Saturday evening? Um, 8.30. Evening, the, uh, that's okay. 8.30 arrive, eat, uh, 9 o'clock or so, bring Bob Wood up, and we're going to have a interview-type testimony with Bob. So... All right, if you're visiting with us, our normal mode of operation is to study verse by verse through books of the Bible. We have been studying the book of Ephesians for a long time, a couple years. We're nearing the end of that study. But uh, while our normal practice is study through books from beginning to end, there are times when I want to address a topic that stands on its own. That's what we're doing today as we think about this past week's election. Uh, Now, maybe you think we should keep religion and politics separate. We shouldn't talk about politics in church. And granted, there are unhelpful ways that the church has talked about politics, both on the right and on the left. But one of my goals as a pastor is to help you think with a distinctly Christian worldview Uh, to help us all think like Christians in all areas of our lives. That includes politics. Jesus is Lord over everything. And again, that includes the political sphere. So, uh, who watched the election? Who stayed up all night, be honest? A few of you. All right. All right. Any immediate thoughts? I was very surprised. Surprised? I did too. I was slipping back and forth between CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News, and it was amazing that they all seemed shocked. Yes. Even Fox News. Sure. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. It was really entertaining. I, I have said uh, one of the great victories that night was the defeat of the media. And, uh, you know, the media could stand to lose a little bit more, and that was a great loss for them, so we're glad about that. Uh, I mostly followed the election on Twitter and Facebook, and it was interesting because the results were in way quicker on Twitter and Facebook than on the television. It was like literally a couple hours later, and they were calling it you know, for Trump way earlier on Twitter, and they were sure about it and all that. But anyway, um, I've really been fascinated by it all this week, uh, more, much more so than I expected. And uh, my cards on the table, I did not vote for Trump or Hillary. Uh, I would have never voted for Hillary, although there are maybe there is more on the Republican ticket that I would more identify with. I just didn't support Trump. Uh, that said, I have found myself relieved and joyful and genuinely thankful that Hillary is not going to be the president. Um, I think that's a good thing for the United States of America. And beyond, I think that could potentially be a good thing for the church, though we'll see. Uh, And having been a major skeptic and naysayer about Trump, I have found myself cautiously optimistic, at least in some areas, while there are still also uh, serious concerns. For example, I am cautiously optimistic about the potential that is there to make significant headway Uh, in the defense of the unborn. So uh, defunding Planned Parenthood, overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, returning abortion legislation at least to the states, laws against abortion, I don't know, maybe none of that stuff happens. But the potential is there, whereas with Hillary, 
it was not. Um, we ought to pray that President Trump would be surrounded by the right people, that he would be given wisdom uh, to put the right people in the right places, and just pray for wisdom and favor in uh, the fight for life. If significant headway is not made in the fight for life in the next four years, I will have a hard time believing that it ever will be, considering the way that the deck is stacked in terms of just seemingly in that favor. And if it's not made, uh, at least I'll have a hard time believing it will ever be made through politics, though God can do anything. Um, I'm also cautiously optimistic about the protection of religious liberty. Uh, With Hillary, it almost certainly would have moved in the other direction. She and President Obama, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but they talk about the freedom of worship as opposed to religious liberty or the, or the freedom of religion. Uh, so what will happen is they say, yeah, you are free to worship whoever you want in that building right over there. But keep it to yourself and don't impose those beliefs out here in the public square. Or else, and that's where the legislation comes in, and uh, there would be fines and, uh, you know, I think even much worse. That still may be coming, but perhaps we've delayed, maybe we've just delayed the inevitable. But the First Amendment, which is concerned with religious liberty, is not about protecting your right to worship in private, though that is a part of it. It is more about the right to proclaim in public, a right that I think would have been done away with under Clinton. But again, while I'm cautiously optimistic in some ways, and there are more. Uh, I also have concerns, and some are very serious concerns that I think we all need to be mindful of. There are lots of concerns, but I will keep uh, to the issues concerning the church. Number one, I think the election of Donald Trump has the potential to make much of the white, conservative, evangelical church lazy and complacent or worse, to perpetuate the problem of mistaken identity. Uh, If Hillary was elected, we were almost sure to see the persecution of the church increase significantly, perhaps to to a degree that we have never seen in our country. We still might under Trump, though uh, my initial thought that seems less likely, but I don't know that. And while it is scary to think about, persecution can have a way of purifying and strengthening the church It can simplify our lives. It can solidify our identity in Christ, solidify our allegiances to Him. Now, persecution is still coming culturally. Uh, It is just likely to come more slowly through legislation than many thought it would. But in a situation like this, assuming for a moment that we will have our freedoms of religious liberty at least a bit longer It is easy for Christians like us, especially for white conservative Christians, to just sit back and enjoy our freedoms as opposed to exercising them. Now, enjoyment is good. Uh, Religious liberty is something we ought to be genuinely thankful to God for. Like we ought to actually thank Him for it. It is a blessing. But we ought to never lose sight of the fact that one of the main purposes for our religious liberty is to preserve the right to proclaim the gospel both in and especially outside of the walls of our church. You know, that includes person to person in the public sphere. That also includes 
over the internet and you know through blogs and things which we all benefit from uh, that way. So not just enjoyment, but the exercise of religious liberty. And not only for Christians, but for all religious groups. And that's something that we should support. Yeah, you can say whatever you want to whoever you want. Uh, But for our purposes, one of the main reasons for our protections of religious liberty is to preserve our rights to proclaim the gospel and proclaim it, we must. I think the election of Donald Trump has the potential to make us more lazy and complacent, specifically in regard to the ministry of the gospel in the culture. Because if there are policies in place that lend their support to Christians, such as protecting religious liberty... Uh, we can tend to think that the policies will do the work for us. I think the church has long thought this, and it's not right. Uh, Or that politics will impact cultural change. When in reality, the policies are only there to protect our freedom as the church to do the work that God has assigned to us in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And true heart change and widespread cultural change only comes through the proclamation of the gospel. It does not come through whatever policy, not through legislation. So there's the potential of making the church lazy. Uh, And in terms of perpetuating the problem of mistaken identity, the reality is that we are citizens of the United States of America, but our primary citizenship, and it's not even close in comparison, our primary citizenship is as citizens of God's holy nation, in Christ. I'm not going to go there now. I am going to mention at the end, if you would like to jot these down for further study, I'm going to mention a number of passages to study. Uh, but 1 Peter 2 and Hebrews 11 talk about this, uh, our identity in Christ, our identity as citizens of God's nation. Uh, we are strangers and exiles on the earth. And again, persecution can actually help solidify our priorities. It can help us realize that our citizenship is in heaven and that's what matters most as well as solidify our identity in Christ, our allegiances to Him. Again, we're still in process of being exiled from popular culture. Just look at education, look at at the arts, uh, that sort of thing. But when we have a government situation where Christians are more likely to be protected and supported, again, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's more likely, at least in the short term, It can serve as a temptation to cozy up to our citizenship here and not live out of our identity, our primary identity, as citizens of the kingdom of God. So for all the talk about the blessings of religious liberty, and there are many blessings, our religious liberties have often led the church in this country to be complacent and cozy when we need to be radical on God's mission. So let us not let, at least for us, Let us not let our religious liberties terminate on ourselves. Might we use them to be serious and to be urgent in an attempt to reach the world around us for Christ. He is the only hope. Uh, Another concern I have as I look at our community and our nation is unity in the body of Christ. Uh, This is a theme that's come up a lot in here over the last many months as we've studied Ephesians. The unity that we have in Christ, we already have it. God has already instituted it and created it by joining us to Himself. Uh, But we have a responsibility to fight, to maintain it. We've applied this to all sorts of tensions in the body of Christ, whether about baptism or politics or race 
or just the generational tension that we've talked about. But I think the racial tension in the body of Christ has just gotten much more significant overnight, or it at least has the potential to. Uh, I've been reading a number of African-American Christians' responses to the election, and these are conservative, many of them reformed African-American Christians. And let me just say that the general consensus is very different than the general consensus of many conservative white Christians. Where the generalizations, but where the general consensus in the white church has been one of relief, if not necessarily that Trump won, but at least that Hillary lost, the general consensus in the black church has been one of angst, if not necessarily that Hillary lost, but that Trump won. The poll showed that over 80% of white evangelical Christians voted for Trump. And that has not been well received by minority Christians. Because of the perception of how Trump has treated and will treat minorities. A perception, by the way, which is not unfounded. Again, it's not that they necessarily voted for Hillary or wanted others to, though I'm sure that was the case uh, for many. But it's just important to note that this has presented more barriers to race relations in the body of Christ. So I want you to turn to Ephesians 2. If nothing else, Ephesians has served to give us a place in God's Word where we know where to go and get our bearings on issues like this, uh, tension in the body of Christ, whether racial or whatever. But let's return to it again briefly. Uh, in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4. I'll read Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. For He Himself, that is Christ Himself, is our peace, who has made us both one, that's talking about Jew and Gentile becoming one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So, the point is, everyone was had this hostile relationship with God, separated from Him in sin, facing His wrath. God killed that hostility when He poured out His wrath on Jesus on the cross and reconciled us to Himself, both Jew and Gentile, through Christ. Okay, so that hostility with God is killed because of God's grace and mercy. But there was also, if that's a vertical hostility, there was a horizontal hostility between Jew and Gentile. Okay? Now all of a sudden, you have Christians, both Jew and Gentile. And it was always a long-standing, generational, centuries-old hostility where you know the Jews thought they were better than the Gentiles, the Gentiles thought the Jews were despicable, and while this was a religious tension, it was also a racial tension. Deep-seated racial tension. So, while that tension we're seeing was abolished in the sense of uh, God took care of all that needed to be taken care of by joining us to Himself in Christ, they still had to work it out. They still had to believe that and live as out of their identity in Christ as brothers and sisters, Jew and Gentile, when their instinct that they had been trained for culturally was a hatred of one another. 
Um, so they were one new race, it even says in First Peter. They were a new race in Christ, but they had to learn to live out of their new identity. And so it is for racial tensions in the body of Christ in our day. We are united in Christ. We are members one of another in the body of Christ. But we have to learn how to live out our identity in Christ. We have to fight to keep the unity that God has given us. And if in your flesh right now there is that tendency to say something about them and why they don't get it and why they need to understand, that's the problem. That's the area where we need to go to war. That is the seed that breeds destruction and division. And, and so look at Ephesians 4, 1-3. through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Keep going. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Whoever is in Christ, we are all united as brothers and sisters in Christ. doesn't matter what race we are. We're one new race in Christ. God's chosen race. We are God's holy nation. We all have the same Lord, Jesus. Uh, the same Father. We're joined together by the same Holy Spirit. Again, we're members together of the same body. We have unity in Christ, but we have to be eager to maintain it with humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So humility involves counting others more significant than ourselves. It involves being quick to listen and slow to speak. It involves paying attention to the burdens of minority brothers and sisters when their experience is very different than ours. Uh, and listening to them. What are their fears and frustrations? Why are they devastated? Fighting for unity involves being patient with one another and bearing with one another in love. We may not understand each other, but we're committed to bear with one another as we try to. And not just bearing with them, but asking them to bear with us in our ignorance. It is ignorance. We don't understand. We don't know what their experience is like. We don't understand why a minority brother or sister feels like they do. We want to. So we press in and we fight for unity. This is an area where it is clear that many white conservative Christians live primarily out of their identity as citizens of the United States of America over and above their identity as citizens of the kingdom of God. Uh, of the many comments I've seen on Facebook, as I'm sure you've seen if you're on Facebook uh, quite a few have come from Christians, and it's not that I'm against Christians posting on Facebook. I think we ought to use that for the glory of God. But in many cases, it is clear that Christians are more in tune with what is happening between citizens of the United States of America and not considering the even more important implications of what is happening between citizens of the kingdom of God. We must prioritize our relationships across the body of Christ. And when our minority brothers and sisters are oppressed, we have to be prepared to speak for them and to stand for them. And not only brothers and sisters. We are called to love the sojourner or the immigrant. 
uh, whether Christian or not. We're called to defend the cause of the poor, the marginalized. If there is injustice, we cannot be silent. And, uh, you know, we're called to love our neighbors and even our enemies. Will someone go back there and click it up one notch if it'll let you? And again, uh, loving our neighbors, even our enemies, I'm especially thinking about our minority neighbors, uh, those whose experience may be very different, particularly those who, you know, have uh, fear of Trump, and which is not unfounded. Maybe black neighbors, Hispanic neighbors, Muslim neighbors, gay neighbors. Um, even if unintentionally, white Christians have built more barriers with minority neighbors in supporting Trump. And that's not, I'm not shaming. I'm just saying this is the reality. Uh, it's not to say anything about whether it's going to be better or not. It's just we have to recognize what is happening. Look at Facebook. I mean, if that's not hostility, I don't know what is. I just want us to recognize that there are those around us that are genuinely devastated, genuinely fearful, genuinely genuinely hopeless, and there is a worldly political way to respond to these things. See Facebook. But there is also a Christian way to respond. So turn to Matthew 9 and let us think about a Christian way to respond. Now I'm thinking here, you know, about just the crowds in general, the, the masses of people. Um, Matthew 9, 35 to 38. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So, who was in these crowds that Jesus looked out over? First and foremost, we know that they were all, each and every one of them, sinners. Which means that they were all enemies of God. They were His enemies. These were people who had made themselves Jesus' enemies in their sin, whether they knew it or not. And not to mention, they were just uh, messy, needy, broken people, helpless and afflicted. When Jesus saw these crowds, which were no doubt a burden, He had compassion on them. He looked at them and His heart broke for them. He didn't see them as enemies. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He did not see a famine. He saw a harvest and instructed us to pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. So when you look out at the crowds, again, I'm thinking Facebook, that's where I've seen the crowds. Uh, When you look at the protesters, when you look at the crowds, what do you see? You see flaming liberals? You see millennial crybabies? You see big sinners? Or do you see sheep without a shepherd? Do you see a famine or do you see a harvest? Because Jesus saw a harvest. Even if much of what you see angers you, and even if the anger is not unfounded, how do we respond? 
In Acts 17, Paul went to Athens. He saw a bunch of people worshiping false gods. He was angered. The text says that his spirit was provoked within him. He was angry. How did he react? He reasoned with them. So there's a way to respond, even in our anger, to lean into those relationships. He was reasonable. He reasoned with them. He spoke the truth in love. So a couple points of application on that. Number one, move toward the crowds with compassion. At least least in your heart. That's where this starts. We can pray for opportunities, but we have to do the heart work first to make sure that that's where we are, moving toward the crowds with compassion. Despite what it may look like, that is a harvest out there. Pray that God would raise up laborers and send laborers into that harvest. Pray for those that most grate against your nerves. Uh, Pray for those that are devastated and fearful. Move toward the crowds with compassion and pray for laborers. Number two, reason with them. Speak the truth in love. Many of us have relationships with people that are on the other side of the divide in perspective, right? Be real friends to real people that think real different than you do. Even engage on social media. I I think that's something that we ought to do. But we should do it like Christians and not like the rest. Lastly, there is fear and sin and hate all around. If this has exposed anything, it is that the degree of cultural fracture and breakdown is significant. And it's not just all around us, it's in us. How do you think the white conservative Christian church would have responded had Hillary won? There's a lot of fear on all sides. And those fears cannot be relieved through political means. That sin cannot be dealt with any other way than through the cross of Jesus Christ. We were all enemies of God, but God poured His hatred of our sin on Christ, not on us. And when we realized that we were facing God's wrath, and deservedly so due to our sin, but we got His love and His grace and His mercy instead, we got the forgiveness of sins, when we returned to the cross and realized what Christ has done on our behalf, how He dealt with the righteous wrath of God toward us, our hate is melted away. And it turns into love and compassion for our neighbors, even for our enemies. So when you look at the cultural breakdown, does your heart break? Pray that it would. Do not let your heart grow cold and apathetic to these realities. Pray that it would break. And that we would move toward the crowds with compassion, testifying to the only solution to this cultural breakdown, Jesus Christ the Lord. The reality is God has fixed today when He's going to judge everybody. We all deserve wrath. We're all on the same playing field in that regard. But if we repent of our sins, we turn to Him, we believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave. We're not going to receive wrath, but grace and mercy and love. And the Gospel is not just for us. The Gospel is for raging liberals and millennial crybabies and racist bigots and angry homosexuals. It's for every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Tell them that Jesus died. Tell them that He lives, that He reigns. He is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And not only did He die for our sins, 
But in His resurrection life, all things are being restored. Outside of Christ, everything will continue to break down. The hatred will remain. It does not matter who's president. The sinful, secular death rot is deep in the bones of our country, but God still glories in bringing life after death. And He uses His people. He uses our compassion. He uses our prayers. He uses the proclamation of Jesus Christ. He uses the love of neighbor and love for our enemies. Might the church not sit back in the next four years, as we've said throughout our study of Ephesians 6, it's go time. The only way the cultural fracture and decay gets brought life and healing is in Christ. The only way the sin gets dealt with is in Christ. The only way the hate melts away is in Christ. The only way the despair gets laced with glimmers of hope, the only way our crazy culture is ever going to change, it's all in and through Jesus Christ. No policy can do it. No president can do it. They might set us up to go for it, but go for it, we must. By the grace of God, we are in Christ where everything's getting put back together and we are intended to go out and bring as many others in with us that will come. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that is before us. We see a harvest and um, we see it by faith. Lord, we know that You're sovereign over everything. Uh, We thank You for President Trump, not because we think he is so great, but because we know that You've appointed him. Uh, We pray that would not be for judgment, but for blessing. We pray, Lord, that uh, You would give him wisdom beyond anything that he possesses, that You would put the right people in the right places, that You would defend the unborn, uh, that You would establish His throne, so to speak, in righteousness, which can only happen by Your grace. We pray that He would know You, that He would fear You, and that He would serve You from the position that You've put Him in. Lord, we pray for Hillary Clinton, who is devastated, and all who are devastated with her. Use this to draw them to Christ, where their burdens can be lifted and their hopes can be realized. Lord, we pray that You would pour out Your grace and mercy even on our enemies, and that You would bless them with this great salvation uh, that is ours. Lord, we pray for the church. We thank You for the religious liberties that You've given us. Uh, We pray that You would help us not squander them. Give us heartbreaking gospel compassion for the lost. Help us to continue to see a harvest. We pray that You would raise up laborers for that harvest and send them into the harvest. Lord, we pray that You would give grace to maintain unity in the body of Christ. Help us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Let us know when it's time to be silent and uh, when it's time to speak. Lord, we pray for our nation and we pray that You would give her grace and mercy. She does not deserve it. Neither did we. We pray that You would be glorified in pouring out Your grace and mercy. Please pour out Your Holy Spirit And we pray that You would bring an awakening and revival to our land. Uh, Lord, we pray Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth in the United States of America as it is in heaven. And we pray in the sovereign, mighty name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
We do have a few minutes for thoughts or questions. trying to think of like an exact quote something to the effect of uh, well is I don't I don't know exactly but just essentially to say this is received very differently in a minority community Um, and not due to like political favorites but just due to you know I remember asking Myron Pastor of Innovation Church in Fraser about this, and he said, "Man, there's genuine fear in in Fraser in our community because a lot of the rhetoric that's been used reminds us of slavery. Honestly, I mean, oppression of you know the lesser uh, uh, classes and things like that. And uh, so there's a lot of that. And sorry, not to give you better." I, it's not coming to mind exactly, but... Can you, you talk to him about this a while yeah. back, though? I mean, not that you haven't talked to him this week. Uh, I texted with him yesterday, and we plan to have lunch in a couple weeks to talk about this specifically. Um, but, like, one guy that I've read, uh, Thabiti Anyabwile, he's a Gospel Coalition writer. If you could spell his name, you could find some stuff that he's written. Uh, Lecrae is another one, hip-hop artist, who's commented on these things. Um, those are conservative, reformed, Bible-believing uh, guys, and uh, and they just have a different tune about all this. Not that all fear. That's, I guess that's a frustration of mine. Is even in the Christian world, mm-hmm. I don't. I'm, you know, I'm not there. But yeah. like the genuine fear, I guess I'm going. But we've got to put our hope in something greater. Mm-hmm. I don't care what. Country you live in, or nationality, or race you are, mm-hmm. to, to speak, to have a platform like maybe Lecrae does, and to say I'm scared and we're scared. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't understand why nobody is offering any kind of like. We've got as believers in Christ, mm-hmm. we belong to a different kingdom. I don't care what race you are, mm-hmm. just offering people. Mm-hmm. Hope. I, that's and I do think that there is that. I think it's more of in conversation with other uh, white leaders. Who, especially those that opposed Trump for a long time, and then they're kind of like, "Why the silence now?" kind of thing. Uh, you know, we thought we were seeing this thing similarly, and it feels like everybody, uh, you know, kind of jumped on the bandwagon. But they are definitely communicating that. I mean, even one thing, you know, I don't, I haven't talked with Myron yet, but. Um, the last thing I saw him put on Facebook before the election was, regardless of who wins, uh, we have uh, another king, Jesus, and we have hope in Christ, or something like that. And so I, I, I have seen that. I think there's just a tension in those relationships that we need to listen to and figure I don't know, obviously, much of uh, what it is, but I've just picked up on reading a number of different things that it's not been received the same way. It also relates, though, to fear for their... You know, culturally, their own people, yeah. um, as either Muslims or Mexicans or African Americans, it's not just fear for themselves. I mean, 
somebody like Lecrae doesn't have to fear for too much because of the status that he has, but thinking about people he grew up with, he fears for young black men right. up in the projects and in the hood that have a right to fear for their lives, and he's thinking about them as unbelievers a lot of times, right? and that they have no hope in anything, and they're being oppressed just because of their skin color. Mm-hmm. So one article that I was reading, and I've been trying to kind of fact check everything, but there is the possibility that Trump will pick a chief of staff that is part of the alt-right um, movement, which is a, a racist movement of mostly white conservative men. Mm-hmm. And so that is huge flags. I've been seeing it. I'm a part of a lot of adoption and foster care related Facebook groups. And um, the alt-right people are already persecuting heavily families that adopt, like white families that adopt other race children, like we have a Chinese child. Are there any names in that that you might recognize? Yeah, I'll look up the guy's name that is the the one that they referenced. Uh, And some of this, too, is just what has been very evident on Facebook or wherever is the now, I'm not saying within the church, but just the racial division that this has wrought in the country at a time when there's been racial division for quite some time now over the last few years. Um, so, you know, the video of the guy in Memphis and, and what he was saying, I don't know if you guys saw that, but when there was a road rage incident and he was, you know, called a black guy the N-word and chanting Trump, Trump, and there was something... Uh, someone here was telling me about something at Carville High School, and you know, there's this kind of white power type uh, thing happening in a lot of, I think, the unbelieving world. But it's easy for, I think, black Christians to see that generally, and then say, and then 80 plus percent white evangelical, y'all must support that. I think it's a gross generalization. But all to say, there's some clarity that needs to come, and the way to, that comes is through the conversation and um, that sort of thing. Chris, I yeah. want to just say something. Um, on a positive note, I read that Dr. Ben Carson mm-hmm. has, for whatever reason, Mr. Trump has a relationship with him, and they've been meeting more and praying together, and he's trying actually to have more of a Christian outlook on mm-hmm. things as now a leader. So hopefully maybe you can have some influence on him. You know, and uh, I've heard that from a number of different angles. Christians, I mean, that have an influential position with him. And that's a great way to pray. Uh, I see Mike Pence too. Yeah, right next, next to him. But just that, you know, truly that God would give him the fear of the Lord and that, that he would listen and listen at the heart level um, and be given true wisdom. And, you know, so here's a, here's a number of passages to think through, and then we'll have to be going. You can jot them down if you want to study further. First uh, Peter 2, 9 through 12, and Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. First Peter 2, 9 through 12, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. As we think about our identity as citizens in the kingdom of God over and above our identity as citizens in the United States. And I would include here Acts 4. Uh, Acts 17, 1-9. Anyway, that's a big theme. Uh, another one, we read these passages. Ephesians 2, uh, 11-22. Ephesians 4, 1-6. As we think about unity in the body of Christ across racial barriers, political barriers, across whatever barriers. 
Matthew 9, 35-38, that's the passage I read. As you uh, think about engaging the masses, the crowds, the whatever's going on just out in public, uh, compassion for the crowds. And let me include a couple more that I didn't mention. 2 Corinthians 5, 11-21, as we consider the salvation that we have in Christ and the responsibility that we have to proclaim salvation in Christ to the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 11-21. And then I'll leave you with uh, 1 Timothy 2, 1-6, where we find that we have a God-given responsibility to pray for those uh, in government leadership over us. All sorts of prayers... Prayers, supplications, thanksgivings, it says all sorts of thing, things. And, and for all sorts of reasons, but especially clear in the text, is so that uh, they would be a friend of the church so that we could continue to seek to bring Christ to the world. Again, that's 1 Timothy 2, 1-6. through 6. Uh, these, This is recorded if you want to go back and check on some of those, but I, those are great passages to study as you consider. All right.